Hello and welcome to Ed Talks UK. For those of you who are new to the podcast, Ed Talks UK is brought to you by Hearts for Learning. We are a leading provider of school improvement and business support services, training and resources that enable schools, settings and trusts to deliver a great education. We believe that every young person through access to a great education should be able to realize their potential regardless of where they live, their backgrounds or circumstances. My name is Jessica Marvel, and today's featured guest is the Honourable Stuart Lawrence. Stuart is the younger brother of Stephen Lawrence, who was murdered in an unprovoked racist attack in 1993 at the age of 18. Stuart, who was 16 at the time the incident took place, now works as an educator and motivational speaker dedicated to helping to transform the life chances of young people. Stuart's latest book, Find Your Voice and Be Your Best Self, Silence is Not an Option, came out on paperback on the 7th of April, 2022, and this will become a part of Scholastic's Read and Respond program later this year. Also joining me today from Hearts for Learning is Andrew Brown. Andrew is the Head of Customer Services and joined HFL in April, 2016. Striving for race equality within the workplace has always been important to him, but like many, was unsure of how to approach this. Following the murder of George Floyd in 2020, Andrew made a brave decision to challenge HFL on their stance on the Black Lives Matter campaign. His actions led the company to quickly respond and launch a plan to become an anti-racist organization. Since then, he has also become the chair of our BAME network and also works as HFL's equality, diversity and inclusion officer two days a week. Tokes Olusemokan is a relatively new member of Hearts for Learning. She joined September 2021 as the Race Equality Advisor. Since joining HFL, Tokes has been delivering training sessions in schools on race equality and anti-racism, writing a hate crime series of lessons, uh, developing anti-racist tools for school and supporting and challenging schools to address issues of racism head on. Tokes is finding this work both demanding and satisfying in equal measure, She's pleased to have the opportunity to work on issues which cut through and impact so significantly on the lives of Black, Asian and global majority communities. Stuart, it's very nice to meet you today. I know that you joined us at the start of the year for our primary English conference. So welcome back. It's an absolute privilege to have you join us uh, on Ed Talks UK. <clears throat> now, your book and your talk at our conference was quite the hit with our primary English teacher audience. Can you tell me what it was that inspired you to write this book? Yeah, so thank you for allowing me to be here, guys. Um, uh, the book came about, I say people would sign it, came about because of the pandemic. I, I don't think I would have ever felt at this moment to have the space and the time to write a book. Um, I found out when I was 21, 22, that I was dyslexic, which answered loads of questions in my mind of why I found the thought of pen to paper such an arduous task and such a, a challenge. Um, so yeah, we, we we went to meet Scholastics two weeks before lockdown. They spoke to me about a book about knife crime. And, and I was like, well, you know, I, I don't really, all that I do, I don't talk about the negativity. I, I try to talk about the hope and the optimism of what we can do going forward. And I spoke to them about the the things that I realised that kids sometimes weren't being taught at school through lessons that mm -hmm. I found it helped through that pastoral care that we give as, as form tutors, as mentors. 
Uh, and I just thought to myself, what a great way to encapsulate those scenes that I found have worked for young people and, and put them down on paper and, and into a book that young people, um, anyone really, and that's also what I say to people, it is aimed at young people because obviously that's that's where it can all start from. But we all had that inner child in ourselves that, that you know, we always hark back to or remember about. And I say to people all the time, the book's able to either give that young child a hug and say, do you know what, you're doing good stuff, continue. Or sometimes it gives them a bit of a nudge to say, come on now, what else can you be doing? Or sometimes it gives a kick up the bum sometimes. You need to say, come on, you can do this, let's go. And so, yeah, that, that's what we've hopefully will do for the book. And especially come out of the pandemic, the young people, like I said, mental health at the moment for me is, is the number one thing I need to ensure more adults have awareness about of how it's impacted them and will continue to impact them for the next five to 10 years as well. Yeah, and I think positive reinforcement is exactly what children need today. So, yeah, um, Andrew's got some questions for you as well. Yeah, uh, nice to meet you, Andrew. Nice to meet you, Stuart. Um, I'm extremely honoured to meet you today. Um, like you, I am 45 years old. I was 16 when um, Stephen was tragically murdered. And yeah it was it was it was a profound time and it followed other instances a, a few years before that had really where you where you kind of really started to discover and and recognize that you were a or myself that I was a young black man so in obviously in 1991 we had the Rodney King um the, yeah, the Rodney King beating that really came to prominence to, to demonstrate there's somebody that looks like me that will have trouble with the police or whatever it may be. And then there was a murder in the U in the UK, um, which was Roland Adams, which many yeah. people don't actually talk about. And I, I remember reading an article to say that I believe that Stephen went to that to that rally or to that march yep. where where um was it where Al Sharpton came over and yep. they, they painted that in a very negative the press painted that in a very negative light. Correct. And um and at that age, look, when, when Roland Adams died, I, I was 14. So I think there was still a lot of insecurities and not really understanding who you were. But when Stephen was unfortunately killed, you I, I was older. I understood more of what it was like being a black man or a young black boy and all of that. And, yeah, so I kind of wanted to ask you is that, look, as a, as a fellow black man, how have the last two years been for you since George Floyd um, has been murdered? I, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's probably opened up some um, some wounds and um, and if anything as well, it's probably shone a light on the lack of progress that's been made by that McPherson report. Yeah, how, how are things been with you? Uh, Andrew, we're, we're almost, I think we're the same age, basically. I'm yeah. 45 myself in 11 days. So, so okay. we, we are exactly the same age. Yeah. Um, and you're right, you know, I, I do, I've re recently been making reference to about Roland Adams myself because Nathan Adams, his, his younger brother, again, is someone that's been left behind with all the, the trauma and mm -hmm. the anguish and the pain and the hurt that this sort of trauma that happens to you at a young age can, can leave with you. Um, so yes, uh, the last two years have been it's been been good times and bad times. I'd say 
it was it was good to see how many young people came out and was like, what, what's going on? Like, hold on a minute, is is this still a thing? Like, why 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 do some people believe that just because your skin color or your religion or your sexual orientation is different to someone else's, that people are going to persecute you with that? And the systems yeah. and the infrastructure of the systems is geared up to persecute you in that way as well. I think that's what really encouraged me and gave me more hope and optimism of where we can go with this. Um, but then again, like I said, it's it, it's still hurtful and painful when you talk about the McPherson. There was the Tony Saul report came out after that as well, and, and look at the disparity of oh no, we're fine. There's no yeah. problem. What's, 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 what's everyone complaining about? Like we're fine. And then you have then the knock-on effect with Sarah Evergard, you know, the young man from Kent who got lost, who, who went missing. And then, you know, the police, there was so many child Q, there's so many other incidences now that's happened since that report's come out to say, oh, no, we're fine. You know, don't, don't look over here, guys. That's an American problem. That's an American issue. That's not a, a UK, British problem or issue. So that's what's been upsetting to, to, to think that uh, those in the positions of power who should can, who could and should be making clear and concise decisions to allow people to understand that, you know what, that was the past. We're making headway through to the future. We understand, we know that these these tradition and legacy uh, policies, laws that we have need to be changed. So therefore, to allow everyone to be their better self. And, you know, the Race Relation Act was supposed to happen with that, um, to, to allow everyone to be able to be treated equally. But again, if, if you don't have a robust system to hold those to account that break those laws, and, and and that do do wrong in positions of power, then we're still in the state that we're in now. So, yeah, as I said, it's it's been a it's been a, a loopy journey, but I always will have optimism and hope that all that we're doing now, all that we're talking about, is going to ensure that when my son's forty five, Andrew, that he's not sitting on a platform like this talking about the same old issues that we know that are going to be so easy if, if we want to be to be frank about it these are easy policies and things to fix and sort out if those that choose to want to and, and that's what comes down to at the moment so just to keep applying the pressure keep keep like i tell people i'm out here banging my little drum i will continue banging that drum until it sounds like you know the elephants that are rumbling in the Himalayas mountains, bottom feet. You know, like let's let's keep on going with it. Let's not just stop and feel like the job is done. Yeah, oh, that's 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 a, that's a great response, Mr. Chair, and, and th thank you for that. And uh, I agree with everything that you've said. And I, and I think when I relate what you've just said to myself, I I recall the 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 despair and the confusion when Stephen when Stephen was murdered. And there, I, 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 I look at myself and how I responded to when George Floyd was murdered. And it actually took me a, I think it took me about a week to actually have a conversation with my wife about it because there were so many previous things that kind of came flooding back. And actually your brother was one of the things that came flooding back because I recall after, after Stephen died, I became very challenging towards authority i came when i when you go and, and it's, it's a bit of a thing that you joke about with your with your black friends especially as men you know at some stage you're going to be stopped by the police or whatever it may be after stephen anytime i was stopped i was extremely confrontational i did not i did not care 
um, I started to consider, and whether this is the right or wrong thing to say on this podcast, um, I started thinking about carrying weapons and, and all of those types of things because I started to realise that actually being outside isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And I can't, I, I, and, and this is something that I reflected on two years ago. Between 1993 and 1994, I actually had a lost year in education. I, I went to college and I actually went to college with a, a, a guy, and I don't want to say his name on this podcast, but he turned out to be Roland Adams' cousin. Oh, wow. And he taught me so many, he taught me so many different things. The, the level of conversations I was having at the age of 17 years old, and just I couldn't study on, I couldn't focus on education. And ultimately, I ended up getting kicked out of the institution that I that I had because I was having fights in in um in college. And it actually took me a year to kind of process that I am a black man and I'm going to be subjected to so many different challenges within my life. And I couldn't I couldn't process that. And I look at now of when the George Floyd thing happened, the way in which I've been managed to process that was by challenging the organization hearts for learning that um that i work for i'm able to i've done it in the actual right way rather than doing it in the negative way and it's that thing that you say about you focus on the positivity and the hope but it takes a level of maturity to do that doesn't it 100 and and this is this is this is why i say to me like when george floyd first happened one of my ex-students phoned me up she said mr lawrence we're going on the march we're doing this da, 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 da. And i was just like whoa like I'm not going on no march. She's like, oh, why are you not going? I was like, I'm not going on the march. This is the first part of this process. Yeah, this is just the first part of the process, which is the explosion, you know, anger. Like, ah, like I can't, but like, that's the first part. This thing has layers. We're, I'm, I'm 30 years deep into fighting, working against the institution. So therefore I know that we're two years in like momentum started to feel like it's been lost a little bit some people mm -hmm. might say other things have been now been seen as more important some might say but for me that's not that's not the case this is a journey and a fight that i will continue to do because like yourself you know at 16 i started to realize hold on a minute oh my goodness so there is a massive thing about you know because of my skin one percent did you realize it's one percent our skin color in our genetic makeup makes up one percent oh wow but that small one percent difference between ourselves as black men versus a white people like company white guys is one percent yeah but because of that one percent wars people's lives have been lost families have been destroyed legacies have been stopped dynasties have been stopped it's crazy it's crazy. So for me, like I say to you all the time, I'm in this for the long haul. Yeah, this is a marathon. This ain't no sprint. And and I'm not going to get excited at the beginning part of just go going out there, banging my drum. And that's, that's the question I say to you all the time. All those people that were making speeches, where are they now? What are they doing now? Because I'm still in the trenches. I'm still with the communities. I'm still doing my little bits, going into the schools, trying to help young people. So... Yeah, as I said, yeah. this is not just for effect. This is this is my life. It makes a difference to my life. I know it makes a difference to other young people's lives. That point you talked about, you know, the the anger and, and that confusion around wanting to protect yourself is a natural thing. I spoke to a 14-year-old the other day and he said to me, Sure, 
one of my friends are going to die. It was a statement that he made to me. And for me, I was like, wow, at 14, you're telling me that one of your friends, you or one of your friends is going to die. At 14, I was worried about clothes, girls, going to the yeah. cinema. Could I go to the Wavelengths this Saturday? Going to Saturday school? Oh, what community group am I going to? What, what trip are we going on? Those were the things that I was concerning my mind about, not whether I had to protect myself. So therefore, what else has someone else got? Do I need to have one as well? Because that's what it's about. It's that, that element of fear, isn't it? Why, yeah. if you speak to young people, that's why they carry knives. Yeah. To protect themselves. It's not to hurt no one. The mm -hmm. most intention is never to hurt someone. It's always to protect themselves. And I say to people all the time, let's, let's not do that then. No one carries them. No one involves ourselves in that way. If, if, if there's a problem, an altercation, you have a discussion, you talk about it. If that doesn't work, you still can't reason and have a, a, a plate where you can say, I agree. Then you go, you know what? Let's let's leave it. There, there's no need to take it to that next level where you're trying to hurt someone. That's that's the bit. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I fundamentally agree. Um, so, so, so that moves me on to my to my to my next question, um, Stuart. So obviously, with your experience of being uh, an educator, a motivational speaker, and I'm sure you travel around and meet, um, meet and have meetings in different schools and different areas. How important is it for schools and settings, um, educational trusts in counties that lack people of colour to embed learning about black, Asian and minority ethnic history, but also current affairs? Super important. If you don't have it, then import it. Bring it into your classroom, bring it into your educational trust, bring it into your atmospheres, because you know, the studies have been done that the more exposure people have to differences, the more they don't become differences. You know, you, and you're sure from your own childhood, like you said, until that point where someone something's happened to highlight that difference, before then, everyone was cool. You, know, you just got on with people. Some people like football, some people like cricket. Like, you, you, you tended to blend and go with people through what you like to do, the things you were interested in. It never became about that cultural group or that cultural identity. That came later on when people started to put like, people into boxes and labelling people. That's what's happened because young kids don't label each other. They don't go, oh, there's Theo, my, my black friend, and, and, and Tom's my white friend. They don't make those labels. Tom's my friend I play football with. Theo's the guy that I go and play cricket with. That, they're the sort of association kids. And it's until us adults, again, with our, 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 our way we want to keep the world in order or putting everything in boxes and everything's got to be nice and organised and can't have no rough edges. That's why we, we label things. You know what I mean, and those labels are important to hang things on. So, yeah, yeah, we, 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 we just need to get to a point where if, if these places don't have these uh, diverse cultural experiences of having teachers, students, because that's also what I find when I go around to these places. There's lots of student diversity, but there may not be a lot of staff diversity, which then brings its own policy and problems in itself. So, again, that's that's why I, I do what I do. You know, I, I try to go around and I try to work with student groups and make sure that the voice that they're and the problems and issues that they're having are, are voices that I bring to 
the, the wider community and to the, the staff body as well. You know, one of the best things that I do is like, I go in, like, I do a talk to the kids, we do a talk to the staff and we do a talk to parents, that the whole 360 approach. Because then everyone's then talking and using the same language. Yeah. Having a better understanding. Because that's all it is as well. There's a lot of fear and confusion out there, but it doesn't need to be. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that, that, that's great. Um, I'm going to bring in Tokes now. Hi, um, Hi I'm really, really Kaya. Um, it's really brilliant to have this opportunity to talk to you. Actually, I've been very nervous about it. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing amazing stuff, I think, with the stuff that you're doing as well. So please continue. Thank you. Um, what I wanted to start off with is, I suppose, really, really personal to me, but obviously personal to you as well. Um, so your brother's murder, it, it was really like a seminal moment like in my life, because I think prior to that, I was a precocious child and quite an avid reader. I used to read like um, Jane Mildred D. Taylor novels. Mm -hmm. So I was reading like some of that stuff. And I think my sister was reading it in school, like Roll of Thunder and stuff like that. So I had in my head that racism was something that had happened a long time ago and it didn't and I didn't think it really happened like in the UK. Um, so I, I just remember the shock, the absolute shock when your brother was murdered because I remember like his face, that iconic image of his face on the TV. And then that it was like an awakening and a realization in me that racism was real. And it like people genuinely didn't like people like me because of our skin colour. That's it. There's no no other reason for it. And I I never from from that point on I think I was I wasn't able to to forget it or really move on. And it started and it did it impacted it impacted on lots of different things that I started to read about to be part of. I think as well. Um, like you said, it sort of made me want to be part, a bit more part of like my cultural group. I came from quite a mixed, um, you know, I used to laugh that like my friends were like Benetton, you know, it was like, you know, this really mixed group of friends. And I suppose I've maintained that to a degree, but um, yeah, there was an element then of sort of looking a little bit more like I want to be with people who were like me and, and finding comfort in that and wanting to be part of that group. Um, so yeah, it had a significant impact. And I just wonder, I mean, you and I have got some other, some other things in common. So we've both been teachers and, you know, you've been talking about institutions, we're talking a little bit, you've alluded to like the McPherson report and the recommendations that came out of that and talking about like structural racism and the work that you've been doing in schools. And I just wondered if you could give us an insight into what you see as the kind of structural and institutional examples of racism, particularly in schools. Uh, I'll tell you about one experience which happened quite recently. Um, so my son is uh, 11 now, but he's, he was going through the transition between year six to, to, six, to secondary school. Uh, we went around to a number of different schools to, to view their establishments and what they had to offer. And uh, we went to one. I won't, I won't use no names because, again, it's, it's, it's not for me to, to poke in that direction. Um, I went to one independent school, quite a large independent school uh, that focuses on sport. And uh, the headmaster stood up, he gave his, his presentation, and then he asked one of the year sevens to come up and speak about his experience so far. Now, he referred to this boy as JJ. Now, JJ was a little Asian like, young lad. 
that just got up and spoke. Now, I know for a fact that JJ's parents never named him J, comma, J. And because of the, 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 maybe the difficulties of maybe pronouncing his, his first name and surname correctly, they've opted to abbreviate a young man's name, his identity, mm. his, his birthright. And, and for me, that's the some of the the, the, the low level stuff that's been that goes on that lots of people won't say and go, oh my goodness, what are you talking like? If I if I then got up and said that's out of order, everyone would look at me and go, what's, what's, what's wrong? He, he's giving this young Asian lad a chance to speak in front of all these different people. Like he's he's showing how much diverse his school is. But then allow the young man to have his name, show his heritage, his identity, where he's come from. Yeah, I'd, sorry, go on. No, no, I'd 100% agree with you. I think, well, somebody who has an unusual name and spent my life having my name mullered by <laughs> um, various substitute teachers and teachers who'd known me like my entire yeah. life. And um, as you say, the effort yes. of saying my name or yeah. asking me to pronounce 100%. my name or repronounce my name. 100%. And you make a really excellent point. So I remember one day there was a, I won't say his name now because he knows where he's at now, but he, um, was like a permanent substitute teacher in my school and he yeah every, all the kids in the, in my class knew we knew who came before me and we knew and then we knew it was me so you know our kids know so kids used to just jump in and just say my name yeah. and he said my entire name so my full name my first name my middle name and my surname as it was then and at the end of it and he pronounced it really nicely and at the end of it he said you sound like a princess oh, and <laughs> you know and, and I remember just I felt pride in my name in that moment I felt reassured he then explained he was an Asian man but he was actually from South Africa so he understood about like African names and stuff and he understood about the history of it and he talked to me a little bit more actually about my name and which tribe I was originally from and the difference that I felt in that moment to have somebody acknowledge me fully acknowledge me and not in any way try to shorten my name or anything else um yeah, it stuck, with, it stuck with me many, many years later. I won't go into my age, but many, many years later. <laughs> um, so that actually brings me on to another point, because you, you were there talking about sort of what we might class as like those sort of microaggressions and the small yep. things. Yep. I really hate the term actually microaggressions because it's, it's the implication that it's this like really tiny thing that yep. isn't really impacting, whereas it's that snowball effect really and it's building and it's growing and that's where the um anger can come from over time you can sort of take it for a certain amount of time and then you just can't take it anymore and like you said the explosion yeah and when you're young you don't know how to handle that mm. yeah um so yeah i just i know that obviously you're doing lots of work about raising awareness in schools and you mentioned there that sort of triangle the pupils schools and parents i wondered if i could sort of allude to something that's obviously been really really current but difficult which is child q and what you feel um may have led a school to to act in that way um i i must say here definitely i i, I always find things like this difficult to speak about because i, I don't from from my, my own personal background when someone else speaks about something that's quite close to you and, and hasn't really had any reference points to speak about that 
then mm. that for me that that's always a, a difficult subject so that's the first caveat here because I, I i don't know who they are and no. I, I, I say to people all the time is is this my am i allowed to so I, i'd like, like to first say that so i find it those really these things publicly things really difficult to speak on because i just think sometimes am i allowed to speak about it because if that was my own child how would i feel that someone else has got an opinion etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know, I'm going to try and sort of give you the best that I have about it all because, uh, again, I have since it's all happened, I haven't publicly said anything. You know, because again, I, I said to, we spoke to my mum about this the other day, and, and there's a couple of things that lots of people don't know. So when you sign that piece of paper to say your child's going to a school, when that child is in that area, in that environment of school, you have said they are in local parental. So therefore. That there is a certain level of things that can happen if the school deems it to be in the child's safety mm. that they do not need to contact you about at that moment in time if they deem it in the child's safety so it's about parents also understanding school policies rules etc etc that, that for me that's super important because again like what did what what do what, what do a lot of parents know and understand about those things they just sign bits of paper and give their permissions for things um so that's my first caveat there to say as well and then the second thing to say is there's lots of studies done that black children are always deemed and seem to be a lot older than what they are on visual eyesight they did some mm -hmm. tests uh, with teachers educational professionals people came into contact with kids and they found that always they saw black children two or three years older than what they were so that i think played a part of it as well mm -hmm. i think that the member of staff may have been a bit frustrated and in that frustration of wanting to prove that they're right has majorly over judged and misjudged the situation because again, as, a, as an ex-professional, I understand how frustrating it is when you know you, you're, you're convinced, you're absolutely convinced that this child has done something, but you just can't put your finger in it. I've been there. I, I, can, I can think of loads of different situations, but then you have to be professional. That's my difference there. I'd say that's when you then have to go but professional. Okay, cool. I can't prove nothing, so therefore I'm not going to take anything. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Even though in the pits of my mm -hmm. stomach, and I might even say to the child, like, in the pits of my stomach, I think that you've done so. But because I can't prove that you've done this, then mm -hmm. I'm going to leave it there. And da -da 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 -da, give out some other bits and pieces, send the person on their way. So I think that's also what's happened. And then the police getting involved and the police overstepping. Well, not again. Again, the police haven't overstepped the mark because, again, Again, procedure says if it's in the child's safety and that officer can say, I felt like it was in the child's safety, in the child's best interest, then again, they can do what they needed to do. So there's there's a lots of layers of all of this where people need to understand that. So, for instance, the, the whole thing with George Floyd, you do realise it's not against the law for a police officer to put his knee on a man's neck or a woman's neck. It's not against the law in this country. So it's, it's, it's again, it's for us to 
educate ourselves, it's for us to be aware, it's, it's passing on this information, it's these podcasts, it's talking, it's sharing of all these little bits so that we're all aware. And if we don't like it, then councillor, your local MP, speak to them. You know, if you don't like something going to your school, school boards, you know, PTAs, go and join it. If you can't join it, find out who's part of it. Speak mm. to them. Because that's how you enforce and make changes. A bit like Andrew says, we don't, we can't always do the, ah, but we've got to go, right, okay, cool, sit down, cool, let's think about this. Why did this happen? Let's unpick it. Let's be professional. Let's understand the policies and procedures. Let's unpick it all. And the bits that we don't like that are not relevant for this day and age, let's change them. Let's make a difference. So that other young children, do you know how many young kids that have, have, have lost out on a possible life of, greatness because of mm. a teacher's opinion of them let's not leave that out there as well because that's also what happens the stigma of oh yeah because you dress like the people in top boy then you must be up to the same sort of it's a style it's a fashion i was talking to my son the other day about it. he's like oh what? you know if you if you had to go out somewhere what would you wear i'm like of course cool. it's black jeans a black hoodie black trainers I'm not a gangster. That's just that's just standard procedure what I like to wear. But that's being coined into then you must be a drug dealer. You must be up to something that's so good. You rather than just saying it's it's the style and fashion of the time. So, so sorry to cut in cut in there, Tokes and, and um Stuart, you, know, you you said something that resonates so much with me. I was asked the other day, um, do I watch Top Boy? And I said, I don't, I don't watch it. And the likes of Kano was one of, is, is a fantastic artist. He's, he's, he's one of our greatest. Um, Asher D, so solid and all of that. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. But I don't watch it because of its content. And I, I, I fear we're still in a place whereby when the world, well, not even the world, the UK watches Top Boy and then they see me, they see that and they can't compartmentalize yeah. that that's a tv program yeah and i'm i'm not like that and and and, and there's and there's something there's, there's something you did um you did Stuart, and it relates back to our english our english primary conference and look I'm, I'm always of the belief of giving people their flowers and all of that when when they're alive and and i want to give this to you because you joined that conference in a hoodie and that's going to sound so, it's going to probably sound so weird to people that listen to this, yeah? But you understand the context of a black man in a hoodie, how people interpretate that. But the fact that you joined that national conference, kind of looking like somebody who would be on Top Boy, but you were able to educate and inspire, that's what people don't see enough of within the UK, of, of, of that what they immediately, if they just saw that picture of you, yeah. they would think that you were probably a cast member in Top Boy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, and do you know what, Andrew? I'm, I'm, thank you for saying that because I I went on TV yesterday and I was and I was in my hoodie yesterday and it's it's and someone said to me, I was, I was absolutely sweated as well, like <laughs> studio lights. So I got there, powdered me down, I was fine. I sat outside in a little green room, fine. Went into the studio, I sat there and I was talking to the presenters before I went on, fine. And as soon as they put the lights on, I just started to sweat. And I was just like, oh my goodness, 
Man's Not Hot came into my head, but the <laughs> tune, I was just like, oh my goodness. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, no, as I said, the only person who I wear a suit for now is my mum. Like if my mum, if I'm going out somewhere, my mum wants me to wear a suit and tie, cool, I'll do that. I've been to some some clubs recently, some members clubs where, oh no, Mr. Lawrence, you can't come in with your hoodie. Cool, I will rock up there in my hoodie, yeah, and I'll get changed in your foyer to what you want me to wear, and then I'll go and do my bits and pieces. And before I leave your establishment, I'm putting my hoodie back on before I go back outside. So as far as the rest of the world concerns, I came in my hoodie and I left in my hoodie. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. So as far as I'm concerned as well, it's, it's part of my cultural heritage. This comes from hip hop. Yeah, this is where it comes from. That for my, for my love and passion for my cultural identity. And I will continue to do that to show people as well that these are just these are just clothes. It doesn't define or make me. Yeah, I can still speak with a quite an eloquent voice, you know, and, and and represent myself. And then if I need to go out on the road and be with the guys on the road, then cool, I'll go. But again, I'm not going to change who I am. I'm always going to be my authentic self. Because when I turn up as my authentic self, then it allows others to be their authentic self. That's what I believe it does. And to show the flip side of coins. And you're right, the whole top boy thing is a problem and issue where I'm conflicted with it. Like I love that it's it's celebrated and it allows young people to go and show what another side of life is like. Because again, that that social deprivation, the 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 whole, you know, I, I say to people all the time that the line is 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 living in Southeast London as a black person, the line of whether you do right or wrong is a thin line, and that line is dictated to by your parents and their parents. And that's why I keep on saying to people, the legacy and dynasties of people's families has been ruined for generations. And that's not our fault. That's not been our fault. But we are having to do now things to put in place to reestablish those dynasties and legacies. That's what we're having to do. So I keep looking at people and thinking like, rah, there's people out there can trace their family history back 300 years. Not a problem. Not a problem. Like a click yeah. of the fingers. I can't. Mm. I'd love to be able to. But it gets murky when she gets past certain couple of years. Like so. Do you know what I mean? So that, that's that's my my bit now. It's about family. It's about legacy. It's about dynasties. It's about building on top of the giant shoulders that we all stand on. Because that that's what it is. We, we we stand on shoulders of giants. We all do. And. It's just about recognising that and pushing forward and then allowing the next set of giants to stand on our shoulders of the platforms that we leave behind. Can I just say, there's some, you've made some really good points in the last um, section, actually. I just want to pick up on a couple of them because they really um, allude to things that you've said in your book as well. So like where you've said in your book about not seeing um, a failure as a failure, but like a chance to sort of do something new but also the point you're making just then about like being your authentic self I think is really important I think so often I find you know as black people there's just like a version of what it means to be black whereas there are many obviously many 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 different versions of what it means to be black you know I've got a I've got um parents who came over as immigrants as black Nigerian immigrant parents so I've got all of that because you talk quite a bit about culture as well in your book and you know the uh, expectations around greeting the eldest person first and all of these sorts of things I think 
that's what I like about it because you've got all these sort of like notes and journal opportunities for kids to really reflect on who they are and not be being told by somebody else who they are and I think that's probably like from my perspective one of the most important things because as a teacher you will know you often meet kids who are um, trying to be a version of what they think either other people around them I'm from South East London too <laughs> other people around them want them to be or tell them and I suffered from that too I was saying it's sort of alluded to that myself that kind of this is what you need to be to be black this is this is what we're into this is what we do so like I was really pleased with someone like um you know Sheikh who comes along playing the cello and I want my daughter and my kids to see that because it's important for them to see that there are we we are collectively bigger than and I've got nothing against rappers. I've got, you know, enjoyed yeah. all of that. But we're bigger than that. We can be different things as well. We don't have to just be one version in the same way that, like, the Williams sisters had a huge impact on me. Because I was like, oh, my God, we play tennis. <laughs> we play tennis. Oh, we win. You know, so these sorts of things. Like, it's important to give these opportunities. Um, the other thing you said, you said some really lovely points, actually, about schools and the impact of, like, a single teacher and I think back on, you know, I look back on my own education and some of the teachers who really nurtured me, some of them were white um, and brilliant, you know, really cared for me, looked after me, pushed me. Um, I had one very amazing black teacher too. I didn't realise probably at the time, but she really was. And she she set the tone for even when I became a teacher, I harked back to her and the standard that she set and the um, expectations, those high expectations. And you really made me think then when you were talking about the difference that like a teacher's expectations can have on your outcomes and how schools really, you know, we, we're still looking at a situation, Akala talks about this in Natives, we're still looking at a situation where black kids, mixed race kids may be in lower sets than their actual potential because of that perception of them um, at one stage on a test or in their career and then not being allowed to move forward or not being given the chances to, to actually demonstrate and then finally, the point you said about loco parentis and that the significant impact of handing your children over to an institution of any nature, to be quite yep. frank, um, and entrusting them and what that really means and how important that is that people who are in loco parentis genuinely care about the children that, that, that they have been given to look after and treat them as if they were their own kids and, and don't allow things to happen to them or do things to them that they most certainly would not allow to happen to their own children. Um, so my sort of final question, <laughs> my sort of final question before I hand back, um, you talked about mental health during this as well and I've often wondered, you talked about your mum too, <sighs> you know I've often wondered how you guys collectively as a family but you individually as well particularly your mum your mum really struck a chord because she really you know as a kid she looked like my mum you know your family looked like my family your parents were just beautiful you know and I just thought you know when you feel the pain inside like that pain was intense and I still feel it when I see her I still feel that like oh kind of gut-wrenching and I just wondered, like, you know, how does it feel for you to have your brother's name, like, synonymous with, you know, Britain's race relations history? Um, I, I definitely would say that it never really hit me until sort of like 2018, 2019. I went and did a talk in a school in Camden 
and to school, sixth form college, went in, sat down in reception. And, and I looked to my left and I saw uh, a post and it said British Black History. And there's a picture of my mum and dad and there's a picture of Stephen. And I sat there and I was like, wow, like, yeah, this, this is, this, we are, this is, this is Black British history now, what we've been through as a family. And I always like to say here as well, as a caveat, this should never have been, I should not be here now speaking to you all. Like I tell people at the time, so Stephen died April 22nd, April 23rd, I went to school the next day. By lunchtime, I had the mm. six names. Mm. I came home, I gave them to my mum and dad. That night, someone put through our letterbox the same names. We found out 2011, 2012, that someone phoned up, gave the same names. Mm. Someone walked into the police station with a note with the same names. So when, when, when we are talking about how the public and the police need to work together, this is this is classic example in 93 of the public and the police should have been working together. But they didn't. Mm. Mm. And all the consequential things that they knocked on from that, that happened, all of that, was there, there was no need for it. There was no reason other than people making decisions that benefited them. And some people were being paid, paid off. Like we, we, we're getting to find out some of that sort of stuff now. But then there's also people just in their job, just not doing their jobs properly. So, you know, I, I, I always say to people that we shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be, I shouldn't be saying I am part of British black history. No, but we are because my mum and dad decided that, do you know what? We're not just going to allow this to happen to us. We're not just going to sit back and go, oh, well, what can we do? We can't do nothing. Like my mum's still fighting now in the houses of Lords for, for other people and other causes. And I've been saying to her recently, just chill, like <laughs> take some time. Like 30 years is a long time to dedicate to something. And that's why I've said to everyone, me, since leaving teaching, I'm doing 10 years. I'm, I'm, I'm year three of my 10 year stint on this. Mm. After another seven years, I don't know if I'd be doing this anymore. Mm. Because I can see what it's done to my parents. When you look at that picture of my mum and dad in 93, and you look at my mum and dad now, you can see the toll, the, the hurt, the pain, the anguish. All of that is weathered on their faces. And in by them doing all that, they missed out on so many family occasions. Again, we'd be talking about legacy and dynasty. Those those are only formed when, as families, you get together and you share wealth and knowledge. If you if you're focused on as a family, as my family was as well, because yes, my mum and dad was in the forefront, but my fam, my whole family, supported us and propped us up during that time. Mm -hmm. Mm. when you're, you're dedicating a lot of your life to that that a lot of other things get missed mm. a lot of other opportunities get missed out on and that for me is the most hurtful thing about all of this and that you know I still now have to find some words to go and tell my 11 year old son who's about to go to secondary school about the missed opportunities of him having an uncle cousins and that other set of the legacy. And, and that's why 
I always say for, for everyone, we have to know and understand that our actions, especially physical actions against other people, are unacceptable on all sorts of levels. It really, really is. And then your actions, if you are that physical person, you need to hold up your hands and take the consequences of that. You really do. And you know, we've seen something quite recently in, in the media and again, I don't want to speak on that either, because again, I just think that there there would have been a better way of dealing with things other than to be physical. Because again, I've, I've not told my son of that. He loves that guy. Like, do you know how much joy it gives me when he's sitting down watching the program and he's sitting there laughing, belly laughing, <laughs> like I used to do as a kid. Yeah. And I used to watch it. Yeah. But now somehow I've got to say to him, well, that he's not he's not that idol. We talked about idols before yeah. about that role model thing in my book. Sometimes those people have to change. Sometimes we have to move on from those people and find other people to be role models and be icons in our life because we all make mistakes. Let me put that out there as well. We all make mistakes and it's how we come back from those mistakes is important. But like I said, violence never solves anything in my book. It really doesn't. I really appreciate you um, talking about that human cost and the human sacrifice, really, of yourself, your parents and your family, because you you talk about that in terms of what really makes you wealthy, like you talk about like monetary wealth versus like real wealth in terms of like who you are, your development, your growth, your family, your confidence, you know, all of these things, your creativity, those soft and those hard skills, you talk about that in your book, and I'm glad you talked about that now because that is where real real wealth is really in terms of long-term happiness but also that taking responsibility like none of us are perfect we're all going to make mistakes I've made several in my life there's lots of things you know I'm very flawed character we all are but that sort of ability it's the bounce back ability like your ability to bounce back to take responsibility I know you talk about a friend you know who's um been in the prison system yep um and that's, that's a, that was a very he was my best friend. Mm. His dad was a police officer. Mm. But one night. Yeah, one decision. One poor decision. Yeah. And he, he lives with so much regret about that. He really yeah. It's but the wrong place, it. wrong time, isn't it? It's wrong. And it as a teacher, you'll know that, won't you? I mean, I know I have. In you come, You've had kids who've, who've done that. Who And fam, I personally, too, family members, too, like... There's been that one decision, that one choice, and it's had disastrous consequences. But you, as you say, your friend owned that. But I just want to thank you because I think from my perspective, you know, that's why I like the book in terms of its ability to speak to children, I hope, and to make them consider their options, consider what, what is available to you, but also that one mistake or one error is not the end. It's not the end. So yeah, I'm going to pass back to Andrew and thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. I've been, I, I, I've read through your book, um, the, the, the previous copy of your book, and the way you wish you talk about your book, and I've got the quote up here, and, and you had said that, I've always wondered how best I can get young people to understand that the power to change the world is within themselves. And, you know, I think you, maybe you, 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 you talked about us all having that inner child. I think your book has truly um, connected to to my inner child. But I say that to say that as an organisation, Hearts for Learning, we have done 
some great things over the last two years. And, and, and we've had conversations as to actually whether we should talk about that, talk about our successes because we haven't done everything. And it took me a while actually to, to be vocally proud about the things that we have, have achieved. Tokes being part of our organisation as our race equality advisor is a first step in, in one of our great achievements. Tokes, along, along with one of our um, education service directors, Rachel McFarland, she implemented a programme called Great Representation that help, that is helping to shape head teachers and leaders' minds of how to deal with race inequality within schools. We recently um, gave away, I think it was £110,000 to schools, to shareholder schools within Hertfordshire, um, for something that we called Grow Your Library. We gave, we gave each of those schools £220 and encouraged them to buy books that was about, that aligned to our anti-racist strategy. But how do we, a medium-sized company in Hertfordshire, how do we continue to achieve success in helping to create an anti-racist um, education culture? Right, by continuing doing what you're doing. You know, you, 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 you've, I say to people that, that, that say, oh, where do I start? What do I do? Like, the hardest thing is to do is to start. You're two years in your journey. So you've more than started now. Tokes is here. You know, what, what else can you say it sets as milestones as senses of achievement, senses of accomplishments? That's what it is. And, and it's, it, it has to continue to become one of those things where everyone goes, we'll say, well, why, why, what, what, we, we're here, we've done it. Everyone feels there's been no, no problems, there's been no issues. No one's talking about identity as an issue. We're just celebrate, celebrating identity. That's all we do now. We 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 thrive in difference. We 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 love the the challenge of someone saying, "Do you know what? I feel like this over here." And someone's go, "Well, that's fine because there's space for you over there." You know, I I there, I, I remember there's a quote from the the Oscar. Um, Recently, there's a gentleman who I can't remember his name, but he won the best documentary for the Oscars. And he said, um, for all those people who never felt like where you belong, you, like, you felt like you never belonged anywhere. Don't worry, we're coming. And I just thought to myself. That's 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 what it is, isn't it? Like. Don't don't feel like you need to come to me. We're, we're coming to you. And that's what as an organization, that's what you're doing by being proactive, by by going out there, by challenging. I think the great thing about the head teacher thing is is, is absolutely important because the the culture and the, the the essence of schools always comes down to the head teacher. Like in all the schools I go and do talks in, and this is a little bit of a cat out of the bag thing, so I'm gonna have loads of people coming to Romy to do this now, but that's the first thing that I, I want to see because it's never usually the head teacher that organizes for me to go in. That's usually the thing. But does the head teacher make an effort to come and find me and speak to me and say to me, oh, thank you, Stuart, for coming in, or, you know, I really liked your talk, or I think we need to do whatever, just a point of contact for me to go, yeah, do you know what? You're on this board. You're on this. You understand what we need to do. You're part of the change that we need to see. But those schools, that don't, that doesn't happen. There's been a few. I've been escorted out by a head teacher of a school who um, – who thought that my talk was a little bit too culturally appropriate for her her her, her demographic of her her school, um, 
but like I said to people, time me, I'm 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 continue to be myself. Like that won't deter me on my journey and the things that I need to do. Uh, but again, I, I warn to those institutions and those places where leadership understands the roles that they have to play and are actively pay pay a part in their roles in that. Thanks, Stuart. So, so my final question, and it links back to something that we were talking about earlier. Um, at the time of George Floyd, there was a lot of conversation and statements about edu education being the key in changing the landscape. Um, and I wanted to ask you, what do what what do Black, Asian, minority, ethnic people? What more do we need to do? Um, so instead of waiting for that change, um, how, how important is it for us to get involved in with, with our local schools? Whether you have a child in that school or not, how important is it for us to be in there volunteering? How important is it for us to become governors? And how would you set out to encourage us to put that foot forwards? Yeah, a, a little bit of a caveat here for me in this one. You do realise as well that the people, all the groups of people that you just mentioned, it's not our problem. It's not our issue. We don't have a problem yeah. with each other. Like we yeah. get on fine. Like it's it's everyone else that's got that has some sort of stigma, ideal um, perception of us. And I, and then that's what and that's what I say. I don't. I just think to myself sometimes, why is it our work? Why do we need to be out there one beating the drum? Why is that for? Because like. I'm I'm black. I love being black. If I could go back and make a choice, I'll come back to black as well. Like it's not it's not a thing for me. But there's other people, so that's something that I always like to throw as a cabinet. It's like it's, the issue's not with me; it's mm -hmm. an issue with, with them. That's where it's with. And yes, but you're right there, Andrew. We, we do need to ensure that we those spaces that don't have pre our presence, and you have the capability, because again, this can be quite taxing. And quite an arduous task. I, I say to people all the time when I go into companies and issue, and, and they, they say, "Oh, we've got a, we've got an equality diversity officer, or we've got a group." I go say to them, "Right, so who's supporting that group then? Who who's their sounding board? Who do they go to when they say, oh, do you know what? Oh, do you know what? We've just had enough.' Or where, where's their where's their fountain that they get replenished from? Because you're taken from that 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 source constantly for for your own means to to be better." So that that's also has to be aware of because it's a it's a mental toll. If you're constantly talking about trauma, pain, and grief, if you're constantly talking about issues, problems, and frustrations, that that only comes to a point where you start thinking to yourself, well, "Do you know what? Wow!" Like, so we have to be careful there as well. But again, if you have the capability and the space to be able to, cool, go and give of yourself. Definitely, you know, start up. Um, I know I, I went to a, a little town called Stroud. There's a lovely lady called Sabrina who's wrote a wicked book called um, The Black Sheep. Uh, and and um, she's lived in Stroud in, in the countryside for all of her life. And the stigma of that, of being the, the, the only one in the village and, and how that and the stories and the trauma that's gone through for her. And But again, I, she says all the time, like, it's only when I talk about these stories, it's only when I share these things that people have better understanding. And with that better understanding, let's hopefully think that they will ensure that they are and their children are and their families are doing better things. Because, again, that's what it is, isn't it? We, we, we all understand that we've got that old auntie or uncle who's a bit stuck in his ways. 
You know, how many times have I heard that conversation? Sure, so what do I do about my, my great aunt who's, you know, she's from the... I tell her all the time, you kill her with kindness, man. You, 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 you keep on explaining to how the things that she may have been told have been wrong. You know, you, you try to show her that the other side of pain and anguish of the people who were persecuted for other people's wealth and gain, they have a story to tell as well. And their stories is as important as the conquerors and the kings and the queens and the pioneers. You know, the anguish and the pain and the hurt and the suffering they left behind is also important to hear about as well. And, and that's what we're doing now, aren't we? We, we? we were able to hear about those stories and understand the contributions that all communities paid through generation for linear. You know, I, I love David Oslega for doing that. You know, he, he's, he's highlighted all these things for us in a quite easy and a pragmatic way for us to understand that we didn't just land here and all of a sudden we've been here for generations for years you know yeah thank, thank, thanks Joe and um, I'm gonna leave Jess to wrap up but um no look it's been it's, uh, as, as I said at the start it's been an absolute honor and I, I I've said this to my wife I've said this to a, a few other people when I um when I made that decision to challenge the challenge the organization never in my wildest dreams did I think it would lead me to be in a room with you and I'm I'm extremely, extremely honoured. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure, absolutely pleasure. And I hope soon that we can actually be in a room where we can, <laughs> you know, if you want to poke me in the head. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, <clears throat> for me as well, this is this is quite the experience. You know, um, uh, I've always thought language is really important and something that's come about from you know, being involved in our BAME forum as well and talking to members in our organization about change. One of the things that changed for me was uh, describing even my family. My family are from uh, Pakistan before partition. And they, you know, my, my parents were very young when they left. And we've always described ourselves as immigrants, but, you know, really reflecting back, they were refugees. And that's something been very, very important for me to acknowledge, <clears throat> pay tribute to, um, and and reflect on because that is not something I learned in the history books in school. That is something I've had to teach myself and learn from, you know, other organizations and people who are able to talk about this and express it more clearly. And it, it, it is my wish, <clears throat> excuse me, to to for my children to learn about their history in schools um that's what i would like to see change in education what would you what else would you like to see change in education so i've just become patron of the black curriculum so that that's my one of my new missions to ensure that black curriculum is is in embedded in all schools um so that's the definitely part of my, my new mission statement because you're, you're right we, we the single story narrative has to stop. That's the reason why it wasn't until 2020 that I realized that going seeing the Spanish Armada that I went and saw as a child was an abomination. I should never have gone and seen that. I should never have gone and bought the rubber and the pencil case and, and the little rubber and the little pencils, and all the things that I bought. I was thinking, oh, this is a great, like, because I was only told one side of the story. So, you know, as I said, it's, it was so, so important now that 
in schools, there's a balance, which then will hopefully ensure that going forward, there is no more this thought of inferiority, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. In, in the whole dynamic of racism, it's an inferiority complex. People believe that because of their skin colour, they are more important, better than others. That's your narrative that you've been told. That's the story that you've been allowed to believe. When, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, the genetic skin colour difference is 1% of your DNA. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, I, I say, it, it's a trick. It's, it's good marketing. It was a marketing ploy. It was good business. Mm-hmm. That's what the reason why that we're all able to talk about these things now and talk about these stories because the reason why that it was put in shifted in an imbalanced way because it was good for business. It's bad for business to tell everyone that they're all the same, that you're all equal. Then why should why should you be in the fields and I sit down in the castle? It doesn't ring true, does it? So the story had to be told that way, and and I'm so glad we're at the stage now where we're untelling the story for the way that it needs to be told, which is these things were wrong. Mm-hmm. It was about you know persecution of one to empower the other, and that now that we've know that, let's try and redress the balance and make it equal for all. Because again, someone said it the other day, isn't it? The Black Life Matter. I was having lunch um, with someone uh, the other day, and he said, "Can you imagine? All you're saying is Black Life Matters. You're not demanding anything. There's no request there, is it? You're just being asked to be considered." And when you put it like that, I was like, do you know what? You're so right. You're so right. Maybe we need to change it. Maybe we need to demand something. Maybe there needs to be a, a, an ask there rather than a request. Thank you so much. I think um, you've, you've given us a lot to, to think about and hopefully for our listeners to really rethink about how we can make change in education and how important that is as well for young people to to move forward you know Definitely. Um, and if, uh, if I may just to leave something for the adults before we go sure. yeah. uh, because we, we spoke about people in professional responsibilities etc looking after children Tusk said it about how you know that's the reason why I was a school teacher of the first world my 30 kids in my class in my form were my family they were all like my little sisters they were all like my own children and that's the way that I envisaged them and that's the way I looked after them that's the way I nurtured them to ensure that anything that happened outside my outside of our realm as a form I was saying to teachers well come and speak to me about it right if there's a problem with someone in my form come and speak to me about it and if, if there might be something else going on and I'll be able to help them deal with it that was something that I always did to have that layer and I always used to say to girls in my form don't you go and st- challenge other adults that's not your job that's my job you come to me with your problems and issues, and then I will go and speak to another adult. That's what it is, because children need to understand there is an imbalance between ch- teachers and adults and children. And it's, it's a little bit of unfair imbalance, but that's the way life has to be sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and that's why we're not friends at schools as teachers. The kids in my care are not my friends, because friends is that, isn't it? They're there, friends. You can challenge me, I can challenge you. You can swear at me, I can swear at you. That's so we're never friends. I say say to the kids all the time. When we leave you leave school, we can maybe become friends if we if you that really mean. But anyway, but that's something important. So my number one thing to leave the adults with is is the word empathy though. 
Someone really intelligent said to me, Stuart, you do realise the highest form of intelligence is to be empathetic. And the, the, the most empathetic person in my life is my wife. I show kids these two pictures of a multi-level roundabout in Swindon that's got seven roundabouts attached to it and a simple cross-junction. And I tell people all the time, my wife is a seven-layered roundabout. She's able to think about what she's going to say or do to someone else, think about their response back, think about what she's going to say back to them. And she go back three or four, four times before she even opens her mouth and says anything. How many of us do that? Because I know I don't. You know, I'm, I'm proper foot in mouth, like, oh, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm always that guy. But I need to do better. I need to be better. I need to be more aware of what I say and how I say it. And my mum always used to say to me, Stuart, treat other people like how you'd like to be treated. But someone said to me, well, Stuart, if you're always treating other people like how you'd like to be treated, how do you know that's right? So I've remixed my mum's saying to treat others like how they want to be treated. That's super important. You, you know, you need to check in with them. You need to ask them what we're doing here, how we're speaking. Is, is that OK? Are you comfortable in that? And if they say, do you know what, you know, I'd rather you not, then we've got to make the adjustments to allow them to feel comfortable in that space. Thank you. Um, I'm really pleased that your book is also available. I mean, we're recording the day before the the release of your paperback. Um, so I know I, I would recommend, uh, we'd all partially recommend that your book be read by, you know, children across the country. Uh, so just re repeating it, silence is not an option. Find awesome. your voice and be right. your best self. And also, you know, we are hoping this will be uh, broadcast on the 22nd of April. I think, you know, this is really important for us. We want to be able to share, you know, resources and plans of action with people. But Stephen Lawrence Day on the 22nd of April every year, I think it's really, really important for schools to acknowledge it, share with parents, share with schools the resources available. You know, we're working on things as well at Hearts for Learning to make sure resources are available to the schools. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us today, Stuart. My pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Uh, on behalf of Hearts for Learning, we'd like to wish you all the best in the, for, in the outstanding work we know you'll be doing for this country. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you very much, Stuart.